Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time. Tell me a story. Welcome to Narratives. This is Will's dad. We're coming to you today from the place I consider to be home, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's where I was born, spent the early years. And we're moving a little slow this morning because we had a big day yesterday. Will got married last night, so congratulations to Will and Abby. And uh, so Will's obviously not going to be here today. He's out on his honeymoon. Um, but I do have the uh, um, pleasure of welcoming uh, Faith Jarvis, uh, Will's sister, my daughter, uh, to help me out today. Um, so I'll uh, welcome Faith. Good morning. So Faith and I have a special interest in animals. We both like animals and we tend to like best probably different animals. I'm a big dog fan. Faith is a big cat fan. Do you have any, either of those, Faith? Well, I have a cat, and his name is Piper. And when Piper was a little baby, I went over to a barn, and I picked him up, and I took him home. So does that make a Piper a feral cat, or is he a domesticated cat? Well, all cats are domesticated because they're descended from domesticated ancestors. And then individual cats can be feral if they're not properly socialized during their critical socialization periods when they're a baby. So he's a domesticated cat, but probably his mom was a feral. Okay, well, we're going to step back one step and just define what domestication is because you're going to have to explain what you just told me again. Uh, domestication is the process of taming an animal and keeping it as a pet or, as, or on a farm. So now go through why Piper is, our cats are all domesticated because they're all, are they all descended from wild cats? That's one of the things I read is that all cats are descended from wild cats. So in Egypt about 2000 years ago, a domesticated cat species was developed from the Egyptian wild cat. And so when they were spread across the world with humanity, it was the domesticated breed that was spread with humanity. So every cat you see in North Carolina that looks pretty much like your standard cat is going to be a domesticated cat and have that potential to be a house pet. Okay, so if you find a feral cat, it's a domesticated cat that got back into the wild. Is that what happened? Exactly. It's reverted to a more feral state and sort of lost its trust of humanity. So how long does it take that process take to become feral? Or is it sort of on a continuum where you can be a little more feral all along if you, know, if you go through generations of, of cats? Well, it's pretty much... Based on the experience of an individual cat, it's not so much genetic over this time span. So 
Cats as kittens have a critical socialization period from about birth to about six weeks. And if they don't have any contact with humans, they're going to be skittish and feral pretty much their entire lives. So while you can kind of try to befriend an adult cat that's never seen a person before, it's not going to go very well. So um, one of the things I've known about Piper is that he's not a real... And I don't know there's only a certain degree of people a cat person that a, a, a cat can be. In other words, they tend to be cats mm-hmm. and not so reliant on people or dependent on them, although they may get food from them and their nourishment. They, they're really not dependent on just contact with them to do well. So Piper seems to be a little bit on the more uh, non-people side than even an average cat to me. Is that true? Yeah, well, he's definitely a one people person but he wasn't really socialized with a lot of people when he was a baby he was very much just socialized with me but also he's sort of a mutt cat so probably his genetics sort of tend towards a little bit more leery of new things and neophobic so as you with the purebred cats there's actually a large difference in temperament that's genetically based because they've been bred over generations to be friendly to people and to be good companions. While with feral cats, every time we find a friendly feral cat, we catch it and we neuter or spay it. So all the feral cats that are reproducing are the ones that are more frightened of humans with these larger fight or flight zones. So actually, feral cats are sort of evolving away from being super domesticated and super good pets. So sort of the most The biggest population of cats that we get our pets from in America is sort of becoming less domesticated and less suited to live in our homes. That's because we're neutering in Spain the domestic ones, so they're having less chance to reproduce, which means the feral ones who aren't neutered in Spain have a greater chance to reproduce. Exactly. Like, the cats having babies are the ones you never see. That's interesting. So are there more feral cats or more domesticated cats? Um... I don't know the statistics, but there are a lot of feral cats. Okay. Yeah. So, and that, that was sort of news to me. I mean, I, I sort of live out in the country, and every now and then I see a cat. And they do, cats in general are not like going to come running up to you usually, unless they're, I guess, maybe really hungry. They tend to run away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to know if they're like a domesticated cat in the community or, or the area I live in that just happened to wander across my path, or if it's a feral cat that's coming across my path. Yeah, and then a lot of people keep indoor-outdoor cats, so maybe they just feed a cat they see occasionally, so that really clouds the issue. Okay. All right. Well, I thought we might uh, go through sort of a history of domestication and sort of end with the cats, which might lead us to talk, think about more about how this whole development of domestication took place and how cats specifically, uh, how, why they act like they act. Okay, so one of the first animals to be domesticated, um, if we look at the end of the Latin, the last ice age took place between 10,000 years ago and 20,000 years ago. And during that period, uh, about 12,000 years ago, uh, wolves were domesticated to become dogs. And the reason that I read that was true while we domesticated them is because they were very much like us. They lived, we lived in families which is sort of a pack, and so do they. And we hunted the same kind of prey. So it was sort of natural for us to sort of work our way together. 
they took care uh, took advantage of um, the technology that humans had and we took care uh, took advantage of their sort of ferocity and their hunting skills and, um, and sort of grew together and so dogs are examples of, an, of animals that are domesticated and very socialized to humans um, how do you see that different from cats so with dogs it was way more proactive so primitive humans always had trash heaps they were always generating all of this food that we couldn't eat just food scraps but that wolves would eat so as the braver wolves who would stay closer to humans they would get more food so they sort of evolved to have less fear of humans and with cats um, in Egypt they would store the grain in big granaries and the wild cats would come and they would eat the mice so cats that were less afraid of humans would have more opportunities to eat and then they would reproduce more so they sort of just became more tolerant of humans but they were not exactly more social to humans so um, the compelling reason for dogs is for one thing, they like ate, ate things that we didn't eat, maybe remains of things we killed, things like that. Mm -hmm. And cats actually were mousters. That, that is mm -hmm. exactly how they developed, is that they were kept and uh, kept aboard ships was one of the first places where they were sort of confined to humans mm -hmm. and uh, to, to eat the mice. Yeah. That was their role, and that's what they did. And that's what... what we used them for, and they used us for. Yeah, so you don't have to train a, a cat to eat a mouse. You just sort of have to catch it and then put it where you want it. Unlike a dog, but you have to sort of train to do what you want. And that was one of the, uh, during the bubonic plague, one of the things that controlled the plague in certain areas was cats. Mm -hmm. Because they ate the mice that carried the plague. Exactly. And there were certain ethnic groups that actually kept them maybe more fastidious and so they kept cats and they didn't get to play as much and that's that's interesting in itself okay so uh, a step back to dogs now one thing about dogs is since they live in a similar social structure in the wild as wolves you think that made it easier for them to make the transition to be around people and to, to develop social bonds that were really close to people? Well, if you look at it, new research is showing that wolves essentially live in giant family groups and you have the parents and then their offspring and then maybe a couple of older brothers and sisters of that offspring to help out. So you can see how they would slide much easier into a sort of people family environment where you have one person that's going to take care of them their whole lives and is sort of going to know what to do and know how to do it. And then cats are pretty solitary, but they'll have, but in as feral groups, when there's enough food, they'll feed sort of loose associations with other female cats will sort of form loose associations with other female cats and they'll sort of raise kittens together. And then maybe if she has, if a cat has a daughter, they'll raise kittens together. So that's a much less, strong and less fluid, uh, more fluid social group, but that definitely is a social group that people can sort of slot themselves into if they help a mother cat and then sort of show themselves as a reliable adult. So do you think that naturally makes female cats um, more amenable to domestication if you want to have like a cat that's sort of like a people cat as opposed to sort of like if you want a cat that's going to be more uh, sort of standoffish and independent then male cats might be a better fit. Um, I feel genetics is going to have a way bigger effect in early socialization than like the sex of a cat. Okay. 
but that you don't think those social effects, like if female cats will raise their litters, their kittens together, and they're amenable to that, like the male cats don't hang around for any of that, is that right? Yeah, well, once you neuter a male cat, they're sort of hormonally similar. So I don't think that has a big effect. So it wouldn't have a big effect. Okay, so that sort of, uh, that gets us to uh, dogs, and th then they became domesticated about 12,000 years ago. So not only are they socially more like us, but they, uh, they've been around for a long, long time. And we've, uh, and every dog that you see is descended from a wolf. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Everything from a Pekingese to a Great Dane, they're all descended from a wolf. Yep. So how did that get to be so different? How did little lap dogs, uh, get to be lap dogs and Great Danes and these really large breeds come from the same genetic source? Well, all of the breeds were developed over many years, so they were just interbred. And then breeds were developed, and those were interbred. But it's actually really amazing that the genetic potential of dogs has such a wide variety. It is, and, and it really speaks to the genetic potential in everybody. We can mm -hmm. be so different. And one of the things that I read is some of the earliest evidence of dogs were wolves that had very tiny teeth are much smaller teeth and much smaller jaws like they were being selected out for that particular characteristic i guess so they wouldn't bite people as hard you know that's kind of what i thought and and it also could be like they were that would be a predisposition the other thing would be maybe they were using them for a specific purpose mm -hmm. or having either you know really large jaws and, and those kind of things was a disadvantage or their food source was shifting as they were eating more refuse from like the human community that that could have been a direct effect of that i can see that so that that dogs come in at about uh twelve thousand years and then the next things that were uh domesticated were actually food animals uh, sheep and goats were uh, domesticated first in the middle east is sort of what I, I gathered from what i read primarily and uh, that's because the nomadic tribes would move along and then they needed sort of nomadic animals to use as a food source. So, sheep and goats. Yep. Movable and easily stored calories. Yeah, that's one way to look at them. And I never kind of thought of them that way, but mm -hmm. that seems to be what... And, and, and apparently they just tend to genetically be like that, where they want to stay in groups and move together. Mm -hmm. You know anything about goats? You know anything about sheep other than that? Well, if you look at herding dogs, um, herding dogs can herd goats and sheep because they have a flock instinct. They know they're safer together. So if a dog runs around and he walks towards the back of a flock, there he knows they're going to move away. And if he runs around to the other edge, he knows there's going to move in a different way. So it's actually a modification of the hunting instinct because wolves will... Um, use their eyes to look at the prey and then see what's going on. So goats learn to recognize where a dog and, or a wolf was looking. So they would eye them and then they would stalk them and they would hunt and then kill them. So border collies, which are the prototypical example of herding dogs, have a broken behavior chain. So they only eye and then stalk their prey. They don't move on to hunting and then killing them. So genetically that link has been broken. Well, did they do that just by selecting uh, border collies that didn't kill the sheep? Is that essentially what they did to do that? I think over time that's probably what they did. They haven't found the genetic basis for that yet, but even like six-week-old border collies will act like that. So it's obviously something. So they'll do the, the stalking part 
And what was the other part, the stalking part? And they do one other thing. Uh, the eyeing part. So they'll use their eyes to control the sheep because the sheep can see where dogs are looking and they know that they'll run the direction that they're looking. So they can sort of predict each other's movements. So the dog will like, they look the sheep in the face. They look them in the eyes. And... Yeah, they just look them in the eye and the sheep is like, not today. It will go in the other direction. <laughs> It's a great adaptation. Mm-hmm. So that explains a little. Now, are goats similar to sheep in that same respect? Will they do the same thing? Will they flock together or are they less like that? Yeah, goats apparently are more independent, so they're harder to herd, but they'll still do that to an extent. And can you get then a dog to herd goats as well? Yeah, and, and they can also herd cattle, but they don't herd, use them to herd horses because horses will kick a lot more and that can really hurt the dog. Okay. So can people then, I mean, there are shepherds, are they really herding the sheep? Does it work work completely different with humans than it does with sheep and goats? I'm not sure if shepherds just follow along behind the sheep or if they tell the sheep what to do. I haven't looked into that. Okay. And I said to the people, what I meant is, does it work like a dog when people look at the sheep? But we don't really know that. So we may not be that domesticated. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I think sheep can see where people are looking and then they'll move off based on that okay all right so uh we got to food animals and nomadic wandering and now what do you know anything about chickens and turkeys because they got domesticated not too long after uh um sheep and goats maybe a thousand years later maybe eight thousand years ago the only thing i know about chickens is that it is really hard to catch a wild one (laughs) Well, they're really good if you barbecue them, if you if you uh, if you grate, if you grill them, if you fry them. They're mm-hmm. really good. Yeah, you just have to catch them first. <laughs> to catch them first. And then a really interesting thing about wild turkeys is that they were trying to reintroduce the wild turkey species to rural North Carolina, and they figured out that they were actually domestic turkeys that they were seeing that had escaped or been released, and they could distinguish the percentage of wild turkey versus domestic turkey sort of in the population by the angle at which they took off because the domestic turkeys would take off at a much lower angle because they had been bred to be fatter and the wild turkeys would take off at a higher angle so that's how they could categorize what they were seeing so was it uh, so a turkey that's domesticated we would raise it and select out for bigger turkeys because that Mm -hmm. would be more profitable Mm -hmm. so do they think it's just based on their weight that they take off at a, at a, a lower angle than um, wild turkeys or is there other effects that may apply? Just the biomechanics of it that turkeys that are domesticated had not been selected for a high takeoff angle which would be better for escaping predators. They had just been domestic- selected for other things so that they had gradually lost that ability. So it's a, it's a combination of probably a domestic turkey even in the next few generations would be bigger because mm-hmm. we've selected out for them. And also because they've kind of forgotten how to get away. There's no advantage to getting away from a predator. Mm-hmm. So exactly. they, there could be two. There could be more effects too, but those seem to be prominent. Okay. So chickens and turkeys. And then we get to cows and pigs about 7,000 years ago. What's unique about a cow and domestication? So a cow, um, what they were used for originally is that they would eat on land that we couldn't use for crops. So if you think about scrubland, you can't grow any crops there if there's not enough water. But cows can go and they can eat the grass that we can't eat and then we can round them up and we can eat them. So we can also move cows, which is was a big thing before 
motorized transportation was really common because you could move cows from the scrublands outside of a population center, move the cows into the population center and slaughter them there and bring the calories from the scrubland to the population center. Can you herd cows in a similar fashion uh, to, to the way you herd sheep and goats? Will they react in a similar fashion? Can you? I mean, I know they use dogs, right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing they do. So do they react or is that a different dynamic that goes on between cows and dogs? And- it's a pretty similar dynamic, but cows know how big they are. So you need a much tougher dog, a dog that's going to be much more aggressive and be willing to sort of go and nip at a cow. So if you have a dog that's only ever worked goats and sheep before it's not going to mess with a cow but if you have a dog that's sort of been bred to herd cows and started on cows it'll be willing to go and like bite a cow's ear if it doesn't do what it wants so he so dogs can't just make eye contact with a cow and and move it cow says fooey right is that well if you have a wild cow that's never seen a dog it's gonna say Fooey, like, no, I'm not going to do what you want. But if you have a cow that's sort of been dog broke, which means the dog has sort of worked it a little bit and sort of bit it once, it's going to realize where the dog is going to be and move away from it. So that's how you get cows you can herd with dogs. Now, is that a real term, dog broke? Yeah, the cow is considered dog broke if you can herd it. Okay. Okay, so the cows flock together... Very much like sheep and goats. Yeah, they um, herd together really well. And that's how they sort of control an entire herd. Because if you push, if you have a cow herd in the middle and you push to on the entire herd, they're all going to move together. You don't have to hunt down each one. Okay. Okay. Um, and we also, now, things we use cows for. Uh, we would, they, they probably were, uh, it was probably beef initially, just the food source that mm-hmm. they they could live on and for. also leather yeah leather mm-hmm. okay so use all the parts that you can use yeah so um they use use them for beef they could live on in places where we couldn't grow crops and stuff mm-hmm. um then i guess milk became another food product and then cows as draft animals became draft animals i don't know were they draft animals first i think they were probably draft animals first. I think I remember reading something about that. Yeah. Because you only have to have one cow if you want a draft animal. You have to have a bunch of cows if you want to eat them. Okay. So they would use them to for work, to work them for transportation, that kind of thing. They'd use them for food, milk, and beef. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, what about pigs? They became domesticated about the same time as cows did. And again, you're talking about an animal that can eat in places... Mm-hmm. So they would basically eat like the refuse from civilization and then we could eat them. So it's a way to get to transform the calories into something we could eat. But what's really interesting is if a pig is released back into the wild, it'll revert to a more feral state and it'll grow bristles and tusks in like six months. So they return to a feral nature. It sounds like much faster than a cat would. Yeah, it does sound like that. Although I guess cats don't really get dropped off where there are no humans. They sort of live on the edge of civilization. Where if a pig was going to go feral, it would go way out into nowhere. So if a, if a domesticated pig, like on a pig farm, mm. hog farm, escapes, how many months until it becomes feral? Just... Like six months before it changes and it's completely unrecognizable. It, pigs are really smart, aren't they? Yeah, they're much too smart for me to be comfortable with them. <laughs> right. So, uh, are, are pigs much more, uh, 
much brighter, much smarter than the other animals we've talked about so far? I would say they have different types of intelligence, although I think a pig has an intellect of like a three-year-old. It passes the mirror test, which means it can recognize itself in a mirror, which Piper, my cat, does not pass. So, <laughs> Do cats in general not pass the mirror test? Did they I know? don't oh, we think don't know so. That. Or maybe some cats are smarter than my cat. <laughs> I have not tested this. <laughs> well, we're sitting at the home of the University of North Carolina. Maybe we ought to start prepping Piper to come to college. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, that leads us to about 3,000 years ago, or maybe 3,500 years ago, cats. And we've mentioned some of these things. They're mousers. They're from wildcats. They were used on ships. Um, what other things are unique about cats? Because a dog, I really understand probably because I act like a dog. I really understand, I guess, people and like to be around them and like to socialize and that kind of thing, which that all sounds like a dog to me. Um, cats are, I guess, mysterious is one of the things I would say about a cat. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to remember that cats were solitary desert hunters, so they like to be tall so they can see what's going on, and they like to socialize by sitting next to their friends, not by playing with their friends as much. Do cats in groups, do uh, do they kind of act like the same thing? Do they kind of like just, they're there, but they're all sort of also alone too, they maintain their space? Mm-hmm. So if you look at most animals, mostly only the babies are going to play a lot because they're developing those critical functions they're going to need to survive later in life. And the adults don't play so much because that's a waste of calories. So with dogs, they've sort of picked up from domestication, retaining those puppy-like traits, and cats, not so much. So a dog is going to play its entire life, but a cat's going to play less and less as it gets older. So that, now that's an interesting thing. So a dog will retain its puppy-like nature probably because it gets rewarded for that, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. We, we, uh, we make a big deal. Like one of the things I saw was uh, I read was that a dog's one of their key characteristics is how social they are with humans. They are so locked into human beings, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's one of those genetic effects of being around us for twelve thousand years. Is we've just continued to reward that. So the dogs that acted that way. Uh, got all these chances to reproduce and be around us and got all the food and all those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, so cats are a little bit more solitary in general and by nature. Uh, wh- now, one of the things I read too in preparation for this was that uh, dogs primarily rely on their sense of smell. They have very well uh, uh, developed senses of smell and that the way they tell time, for instance, if you go to work, they know what it smells like when you go to work. Probably they know what your scent smells like. And then through the course of the day as the scent disperses, they know what it should smell like when it's time for you to be home. And that's how they tell what that you should be home, that's coming home time is because it, it smells that way. That, your scent has dispersed that much or other smells that they get at that time of the day occur. Mm-hmm. So now what do cats do to, what's some of their uh, key characteristics of, do they rely on sight, sound? Cats mostly rely on sight, but not so much color. They look at movement because that's what they would use to catch, like for instance, a mouse or a bird. But also they're farsighted, so they can't really focus within about three inches of their face. So if you ever see a cat 
jump on something and then swing their head back and forth looking around for it. They're using their whiskers to sort of feel where it is because they can't see it that close to their face. So within three inches, they can't really see well. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like me. Like at at (laughs) Mm -hmm. my age, uh, I don't have the ability to do that really close focus thing. So so when I go into a restaurant, I hold a menu a foot away from my face. Mm -hmm. If you've ever ever seen a cat see something and like rear back, it's so they can focus on it. So they're trying to get their head back far enough so they can bring things into focus. Exactly, yeah. Okay. If they don't feel comfortable sticking their face in it and sort of feeling around with their whiskers. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. So their, their, their vision is primarily focused on movement mm-hmm. and not colors. Exactly, yeah. Are they color blind or they just don't have good color discrimination? They can see some colors. I don't remember which colors they can't see, but they can't see as many colors as humans. Really? So yeah. they, they have more. It's not a black and white existence, but just fewer primary colors, is it? Yeah, I think they can see green versus red really well and then not blue as much or something. Okay. All right. So, um, so cats all, I guess initially they, uh, primarily hunt, they still hunt for food primarily, or I mean, I guess it depends if you're a feral cat or a domesticated cat, part mm-hmm. of the answer to that, right? So if you have an indoor outdoor cat and you feed your cat however much it needs, it will still go out and hunt and it'll still kill as much as if it doesn't eat at your house at all. And so there's actually an ecological crisis going on sort of throughout the world from indoor outdoor cats and feral cats eating all the native birds and all that and destroying sort of the native small mammal population. So is that because we have more cats? Because, you know, we've had cats for 3,000 years and we have songbirds. Mm -hmm. So if they're really making a huge impact on on the population, uh, songbirds is the one I read about. So if they're making a huge impact, does that mean there are a lot more cats? Well, cats were spread out of Europe. So they're an invasive species in places like North America and Africa and New Zealand and Australia. So that's a big change that's happened in the last 200 years or so. And also pound for pound, cats are the most efficient land predator. So they're just really good at eating things. And and maybe, uh, do they eat everything they kill? They do not. They'll just kill things for fun sometimes so that's just their nature is they they do that so they're mm-hmm. sort of driven to it yeah exactly so whether it's fun or not it's what i'm here for exactly yeah so uh now that's a really good point i mean uh european settlers have probably only been in the united states for 300 years mm-hmm. and so uh that means and during 300 years ago there wouldn't have been that many cats because they just got here mm-hmm, exactly is that when they sort of arrived on the shores as mm-hmm. the europeans brought them here yeah um, North America had a na- native wildcats. They had pan- uh, pumas and wildcats, but they were not present in the numbers that sort of domesticated cats are. What happened to the pumas? Because we still got wildcats, right? Yeah, we still have like bobcats and stuff, but uh, mountain lions mostly have gone extinct in a lot of the regions. So extinction's been a big play here. Okay, yeah. so cats get here 300 years ago, and I guess they flourished. Is that right? Exactly. So they don't have any really big predators here, except for like, also pretty much feral dogs, okay. and you know large birds of prey when they're small. Okay, what natural predators does a cat have? If it's, I mean, maybe they don't have many predators here. Are there other parts of the world where they're uh, they're preyed upon more? Well, I guess the cat's biggest predator really would be birds of prey that could come and swoop them up or like coyotes, but I don't think coyotes were a natural predator in Egypt. Okay. 
So 300 years ago, they land on the shores and people uh, are using them as mousers, which they're really good at and that's really useful. So they get started. And uh, have they primarily grown through domestication? Has been that been the process? Have feral cats played a huge role as well? Yeah, sort of just um, skirting around on the outskirts of civilization as people push more into North, the European settlers push more into North America, they just brought cats with them. And so they had the opportunity to spread through both effects. They feral cats got to go out there and do their thing, and the domesticated cats probably have an easier life. They got uh, to take advantage of that, and um, yeah, they were sort of seat, populations were sort of seeded by domesticated cats. Has the population come under to control under control with domestic cats just from spray spaying and neutering programs that gone? Well, it's definitely declining, but it's still a big problem. So we still have. Too many domesticated cats, and we still, are, and we still are, What's the story with that? Well, feral cats are really difficult to domesticate. It'll take years before you can have like a happy lap cat to sit on your lap. If you start with a feral adult that's never seen a person before, so while a friendly cat could pretty easily find a home, there aren't that many people who can take on the feral cats. So we still have, even if we catch the feral cats, we don't really know what to do with them. So that's still a big issue. So. Uh, if, uh, if does animal control catch a, do they catch a lot of cats they try to or just the nuisance cats or what happens with that uh, it's different in different areas in some places they do trap neuter release which is when they catch feral cats spay or neuter them vaccinate them against rabies and then just release them in the area that they live because in like the 80s they used to just catch them and then kill them if they were a nuisance but then a lot of people started protesting against that so now they just spare neuter them and hope that the population will sort of decrease by itself. So a feral cat will eat what it can. What are the things a cat will eat in the wild? Anything it can get its hands on, mostly. And birds we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Birds, um, lizards, mice. So and we we have a real interest in uh, not bird control, but certainly uh, will they play rats as well? Yeah. So I once saw a cat catch a rabbit that was bigger than it was. So, so anything about up to that size. So and they're really ferocious. They may be small, but they can be really ferocious. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Exactly. Really efficient machines for doing what they do. Mm -hmm. So it seems like just a natural advantage to have cats sort of running around places where you've got mouse and rat problems for or sure. cities. And interestingly, domestic cats, as compared to their wild counterparts, actual wild cats, have greater ability to de digest carbohydrates. So that's what they got picked up over the years from like picking up food scraps from humans. Well, so a feral cat will be more dependent on a protein diet. Yes, exactly. Cats are still obligate carnivores, but they'll still eat carbon. But now they can also eat some carbon. Hydrate sources. And they can metabolize the carbohydrates now? Yeah, to a certain extent. So they're probably not real efficient at it, but they've, they've adapted that way. Exactly. Cats are incapable of producing the amino acid taurine, so they have to get that from other meat sources, and that's why they can't be vegetarian. What is taurine? Something in amino acid and protein. Yeah, it's used to make like ATP, which is super important for all of your biological processes, and they don't have an enzyme that can cleave it or something, so they have to take it from biological sources. So they they get that from the protein, then, and that okay, that explains why they can't be an obligate vegetarian. Exactly. Okay, uh, that's interesting. 
Okay, um, what about different types of cats? What's interesting about different types of cats? Like, I've always, if I had a cat, and I had cats as, when I was young, but they were outdoor cats. They were mm -hmm. barn cats, and uh, we didn't have indoor cats. And we had a real big cat that was about 20 pounds. So I like, I guess I like cats that are like little dogs. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I've always, I've seen uh, about Maine Coon, the Maine Coon cat. Mm -hmm. And that's like a 40 pound cat. Exactly. Is there anything different from a Maine Coon cat and your basic house cat? They're basically just larger cats. There's not a huge divergent personality in cats like there is in dogs. So it's basically your standard cat, but bigger. So more, they're in not in being less domesticated. It's like uh, a cat can't be used for work, like for a dog. directed work. Yeah, for directed work. So what kind of work? Other than is that what we prim primi primarily use a cat for? Is to be a pet or to be a mouser? Yeah, that's pretty much the two jobs of a cat. And they, they're also pretty efficient exterminators, aren't they? They are. They are very efficient killers. <laughs> so they'll go after the bugs, too. Exactly, yeah. So I came home one day and Piper had murdered an incredibly large cockroach and just left it there for me to find. So I was like, thanks, buddy. Well, it does seem to be advantage to find a dead cockroach as opposed to a live cockroach. Yeah, or having a live cockroach in your house. So <laughs> there is that. So, do you know anything about like insect control inside with cats? Are they really good at that too? Will they really uh, do uh, some devastation on your infestation? Well, you have to think that a cat is only really triggered to hunt what it can see. So if you have like ants, that's not going to be super efficient. But if you have giant cockroaches, then that might be a so solution. So for a lot problem. of yeah, so for cockroaches, it might be good. Yeah. Really, really worth having. Mm -hmm. What kind? What if you got to put in the cat's diet? What's in the cat food that they need? I mean, protein we've talked about. Mm -hmm. They put carbohydrates in there too. Mm -hmm. And they were looking through the research, and they found that cats really do better on wet food because they're desert creatures and their kidneys are super efficient. So they'll pull all the water out of the materials that they eat and drink, and they're also not programmed to drink a lot. And so they can get dehydrated really easily. And when they get dehydrated, their urine is so thick that it can sort of cause crystals and then in like the urethra. And so that's something that really kills a lot of cats. So the, do they get kidney stones? Is that what that essentially is? Yeah, they get stones in like the urethra, which I think leads from the kidney to the bladder. Or they'll get bladder stones, which is like the drainage from the bladder, I guess. And then they'll also get kidney failure. So every cat... Is going to die of kidney failure eventually. That's mostly what gets cats once they get old. Because is it because their kidneys are less efficient, or they're just having all kinds of systemic problems, and that's their weakest link in the chain? Well, their kidneys work super hard their entire life, so they fail first. Okay, and uh, so is there anything you can do to encourage a cat to drink? Like I, I know you had a cat fountain at mm -hmm. one point. Does moving water help? Yeah, moving water helps, and then keeping the water bowl far away from the food bowl helps because they're programmed not to drink water next to where they eat because they know that that can be contaminated. And then actually a bowl with a solid colored bottom will help because then they can see the bottom because they can't focus so well when they're trying to dip their head in to drink. So right. that'll encourage them to drink. So do cats have a natural aversion to water since they're not very dependent on them? Are they poor swimmers? Um, they're not great swimmers, but they can swim. But it's just if they haven't been introduced to it as a 
kitten, then they'll become neophobic of it. So some people have actually taught their cats to love having bats by just gently introducing it to them over and over. Okay. So do you spray them or sprinkle them? How do you get a cat used to a bath? Uh, you sort of put it in a tub that you're going to pour it, and you'll sort of gently pour water over them until they get used to it. Have you tried that? Yes, and it didn't end well. So we didn't <laughs> try it again. <laughs> okay. Uh, cat pathology. What kind of diseases are cats prone to? You mentioned kidneys mm-hmm. are a weak, a, li- a weak link in their chain. What yeah. else is... Well, uh, also something that's really dangerous for cats is if they don't go in the litter box and the person decides to get rid of them. So that if cats are very susceptible to stress because they're very easily stressed because they're both predator and prey animals. So if they feel stressed and they start hiding in corners, they'll start also going to the bathroom in those corners. And once they have a habit of going there and it smells like the bathroom, they'll go there all the time. So that could be a really hard link to break. And then eventually their person can just get tired of it and kick them outside where they can get hit by cars. Okay. Yeah. So you got to understand the cat. Exactly. Uh, what does a cat act like when it's stressed other than run away, which is, I've seen that. Yeah. So cats will hide in small places if they get stressed and they'll spray because it makes it smell like them and that'll make them feel more secure. So those are sort of signs that your cat is really stressed. Okay. And one of the things, one of the, People object to sort of both those things, and so it might be that you're not understanding your cat. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, are there diseases that, that cats are specifically uh, prone to? Mostly kidney failure, and then there are some plants that they're that are highly poisonous to them. So most of the plants in the morning lily family are very poisonous to cats, and so when people bring those in, that can kill their cats. What about chocolate? Can a cat eat chocolate? Dogs can't eat chocolate, yeah. right? A cat cannot eat chocolate, and they also cannot eat grapes. What is it about a grape? I'm not sure. Apparently, there's some chemical in there that's not good for them. So don't let them get the grapes. Mm-hmm. Daylilies, is that what? Yeah, daylilies. Chocolate. They don't do well with chocolate. Yeah. What's, what's a treat for a cat? So you can give them carrots. They love carrots. And I basically just buy treats off the shelf. It's basically his kibble, but in a smaller bag and more expensive. But he does love them. They're salmon flavored. Okay, so it sort of tastes like a fish. Which I, yeah. I would get that. What is it about a carrot that a cat would like? You just throw it and they're like, this is so exciting. And then they can eat it. They so. can, okay. As a sort of, and I guess they get some carbohydrates. Eh? Well, they just mm-hmm. chew on them or you get shredded uh, carrots what do you kind of carrot do you get a cat yeah i just cut them into pieces about the size of my thumb but flat and then toss them and you'll just i'm um, slap them out of the air okay yeah all right. not all cats will do that probably but okay yeah. i'm gonna pivot a little bit because we need to talk about um another big group of domesticated animals that we've we haven't mentioned yet and that's horses mm-hmm. so Tell me about that. Tell me why did we domesticate a horse? So a horse is going to be an animal that we've used to take scrubland calories and generate traction-bearing work, right? So it was all for work. Is that it's sort of like a cow is a draft animal and ox? That's mm. why we have horses. Exactly, because horses are sort of much harder to control than cattle because. They flee more than they'll stand and fight, so it's harder to get close to them. So it's not really worth it to sort of grow them for food. Okay. 
were they have they ever been grown for food or is it just too much work easier to grow a cow uh the mongols who were a big nomadic horse culture would eat their horses and they would also ride their horses so riding is and traction generating work is normally their primary purpose but they'll also get eaten if needs must so was it out of need or is it like it's an old horse and it's time to not go out past to get on the barbecue which yeah it was probably both the first and the second okay so um and, and so where were horses initially domesticated do we know that uh in the steppes of mongolia i think okay mm-hmm. the nomadic tribes yeah and did they and they used them like, to carry stuff Is yeah exactly why did they not pick up cows or or uh oxen to do that were, were horses more plentiful well horses are faster and they're also more pleasant to ride why is a horse more pleasant to ride? Because it's not as wide. What is it about a horse? Yeah, it's not as wide, so it's easier to sit on. And they're also more startle-prone, so you can get them moving easier. Like, if you've ever tried to make a cow go anywhere, you know it's going to do what it wants to do. <laughs> but if you wave a plastic bag at a horse, it is gone. Uh, that's because it's startled. Yeah, exactly. Because, it is, because it's an animal of prey. That it's like yeah, a- exactly. They've learned... Or, They've developed a survival strategy that's much less, much more, it's much less energy costly to run away whenever you get startled than to get attacked the one time you don't run away. So what did cows develop as a defense mechanism? Herds? Exactly. So they'll sort of bunch together and they'll face outwards and try to gore what's ever coming for them, especially if they have like young, young um, babies at the hoof. Okay. So, uh. Horses are also herd animals, so how does how do their um, how does their social structure work? So with a social structure, so you have a group of mares and one stallion. So there is going to be one lead mare, and she's going to look around. She's going to decide where the horses are going to go and where they're going to eat and sleep. And she'll look around and she'll decide if they have to run away from a predator. And then you'll have one stallion with that group of mares and he'll sort of fight off all the other stallions. And the extraneous stallions, which are too old to fight for a herd of mares or young, they'll form bachelor billions and they'll sort of hang out together. So all the older stallions have their own social group. Yeah, and also young stallions, so cults before they really reach maturity. Okay, so at some point, if you're uh, with, if you're if you're a cult with a mare, you stay till a certain point just to sort of grow up. Mm-hmm. Exactly until you're about a year old, and then you're going to get kicked out of the herd by the main stallion. And then you got to now. Do these different herds sort of hang out together, or have you got to go wander off and find find out a herd of old stallions and colts thing out with? Uh, you'll probably, if you're a yearling, you'll probably have seen a bachelor herd. So eventually you're going to be, there's going to be one like around and the main stallion's going to kick you out and he'll get more and more aggressive. So first he'll like run you off a little ways and then he'll run you out farther and farther until you get the hint. So probably during one of those times you'll find a bachelor band and you'll hang out with them. Okay. Yeah. And then the female horses, the female babies will just stay with their mothers. So they stay in that in that herd. Uh, they don't get they, only the the stallions get run off like that. Yeah, and then they can get stolen by another stallion to join another herd. The uh, the females or the males? The females. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of loosely associated. It's not super strict. Okay. 
So again, we're talking about herd animals. Did that make it easier to socialize horses because they recognize herds or is that not really have an effect in this case? Exactly, and then people also use the fact that horses have developed body language to move other horses to teach them to be ridden. So if you put pressure behind a horse, it'll move off. So if you stand to the left and you try to move them off, they'll move off to the right. And if you stand to the right and try to move them off behind them, they'll move off to the left. So that's sort of the basis of how they're communicated with and ridden. Do we use dogs to herd horses like um, we do cows and goats and sheep? Uh, we don't because horse, herding horses is a lot more dangerous for dogs than herding cows. You get kicked, is that what it is? Yeah, exactly. And horses are a lot more likely to kick and kick a lot harder and they have a lot longer range. So they can't dip in and then nick, nip their heels to move them forward because they can do that to a cow, but not to a horse. Is it, are horses by nature more fearful than cows? Yeah, horses are a lot more skittish. So is that, like that, that's the other thing I've never understood about horses. Like I understand a dog. Because they understand the way they, I think that, I believe they think. Mm -hmm. They they think like I do, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, but a horse, I've never understood. And I think it's a trust thing. Yeah. Like dogs trust you, right? Mm -hmm. But a horse doesn't trust you at all. Horse would leave you for Saint if to like save itself, yeah. So are they always like that? Are they always mistrusting? Is that they're just their nature because they're animals of prey? Uh, a little bit. The way a horse sees is they have two eyes on the side of their head, so they can't see directly in front of them. And they can see movement and shadow sort of on the extreme edges of their vision. So things are a lot scarier when you're a horse because you don't really know what's going on because you can't see right in front of you. You can only see when there's a lot of movement. So if you see something moving, you're like, well, that's probably a wolf. I got to get going. Right. Okay. So, so what is it just the socialization to individual people that um, makes a horse like more accepting of them or they always got this thing of like it might be a wolf well you can what's the word desensitize horses to things but you have to desensitize them to each individual thing so like if you desensitize them to flapping bags you also have to desensitize them to cars and so on and so forth so pretty much it's just a lifelong exercise of no that's not going to eat you okay what is the most interesting part of a horse to you? Because I know you love horses. You like cat. You really like cats. You really like horses. So, mm -hmm. what is the most? What are the most interesting things about horses? Hmm. Pretty much that you can ride them around. I think is the most interesting thing about a horse. Really? I think that's really fun. Yeah. Do they, Do you think horses make good pets? They make terrible pets, honestly, but it's super fun to ride them, so people endeavor. What makes them bad pets? Like, people have these uh, miniature horses? Yeah. Are they better pets? Uh, mostly we have miniature horses, so the large horses don't freak out when they get left alone. Really? Yeah. So because, they make good friends? Yeah, exactly, and you don't have to feed them as much. So uh, do, uh, the miniature horses have different personalities then, or are they just... Or is it just because you've got another horse there that, and they don't eat as much, so that's an advantage? Is that yeah, they pretty much have standard horse personalities. Do they? Yeah. I think what makes a good pet is low cost to keep them. They're really fun to interact with, and they'll interact back with you. They're snuggleable, and you can pick them up and hold them. So 
I think horses have two of those things, so they're really fun to interact with, and they're snuggleable to an extent. So, um, I, I see that. And then, uh, and as much as we've talked about how skittish horses are, um, they they obviously um, form bonds with humans, so they're like mm-hmm. glad to see you. Yeah. Um, you think that goes past like, oh, he's going to, he or she's going to feed me. I'm going to get water. I'm going to get groomed. I'm going to get outside. Do you think it's past that? Do you think they just sort of uh, form other bonds? Like it, like it's a miniature horse. I'm comfortable because there's another horse here. Mm-hmm. There comes Faith, and I know her, mm-hmm. and, I, and I know she, that's like home. Yeah. Well, I don't know how much more there is to animals, but they'll definitely play with you, right? Horses will play with you. Yeah, like, so you can play games with horses. I don't know if you've ever looked into clicker training, but it's basically you take a clicker and then you click every time they do something you want, and then you give them a treat every time you click. So they'll start doing random things to see if they can make you reward them. Okay. So that's sort of like games you can play with horses. Okay. Um, So it must be pretty smart to be a horse if you can learn that. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, one of the things that... It's a different way to be smart, I think. Okay. It is a different way to be smart. And uh, Will told us that he uh, dog sat with a dog, a corgi, I think, that had um, three buttons he pushed and got rewarded. Like one was when he wanted to go outside because mm-hmm. he had to go to the bathroom. One was when he wanted a treat. One was when he wanted dinner. Does that sound? Yeah. So th- that sounds like there's a lot of intelligence in- involved with that. Yeah, like just because something can talk doesn't mean it's not smart. Yeah, and so uh, are horses smarter than dogs? I mean, they play games. I would say they do. They're smart doing the things horses do, and dogs are smart doing the things dogs do. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So they've adapted to their environment, mm-hmm. and then they'll do things to get rewarded because that is smart, just like we would do that. Mm-hmm. Like we get up, go to work, so we get rewarded. Yeah. Like horses can't see directly in front of them, so if a horse wants to jump over a fence, they can't see the fence that they're running up to so they have to remember where it was and then guess sort of where they should jump so they can make it over the fence i if i was a horse i would not jump fences because yeah. i'm not jumping trying to jump over anything i can't see yeah so, <laughs> so maybe the horse is smarter than you in that respect uh, yeah. absolutely yeah probably or dumber one of the <laughs> It would have to be one or the other. It yeah. couldn't be anything in the middle. Exactly. <laughs> so how hard do you have to, or how long do you have to train a horse to jump over? I guess they have to jump over things in the wild too, right? Yeah, exactly. But to get like a horse that really knows what it's doing, it takes at least five years of training that you can really ride it over big fences. It's because, And that's because it knows not to do that, I guess. Yeah, it sort of knows how tall the fence is and how high it's got to jump and like where it's got to jump from. So... A horse that's going to jump a fence, does he have to run like parallel to the fence so he can see it and sort of measure it up and then start running towards it? Or how? how? Well, he can sort of see in front of him if it's like 20 feet away. And as it's closer, it goes into that blind spot. So he'll run straight at it and then he'll know, I guess, how big he is and how long his stride is. And then he'll know when he has to jump. So he's not taking his cue from the rider. He's gauging this all himself well he can also take a cue from the rider you can teach horses to trust you to tell them when to jump and if you're jumping really complicated fence setups that's what you do but horses can also jump on their own okay so when 
horses are doing this complicated. They got. They must. There must be a lot of trust. Like it's time to jump. Yeah, exactly. And it must not be easy as a rider to think. Well, it's time to jump because if you miss, well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so. What they do is they set up courses. So a horse, a standard horse, has a ten foot stride length. So they'll set them up ten feet apart. So you count how many times they've taken steps they've taken canter steps and so you you say okay that's one step that's two step that's three steps now we jump okay and i remember we went to uh briar fest a couple years ago where that was located in lexington kentucky do you remember the the place it, it was like a big horse park oh yeah the kentucky horse park i think it's called yeah and one of the things i thought was most interesting about that is they had a place where uh, they had measured off a ho- horse strides for mm-hmm. some of the, the oh horse. for Seabiscuit and Man of War yeah. yeah and Man of War's stride when he was running mm-hmm. was over thirty feet yeah exactly so uh, that's incredible to me to be able mm-hmm. to cover that much ground with and, and, and yeah that's crazy yeah and now they jump a long ways do they how high can they jump I mean they could if you got a horse with a long stride he could cover thirty feet. Mm-hmm. How high can a horse jump? I think the highest that they've ever jumped is like 10 feet. Okay. Yeah. Because there's a lot of mass going up, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're not like a deer, which these which seem to be all, well, horses sort of are all, all legs, but they, the deer don't have those big barrel bodies. Yeah, deer are much smaller than horses. So if you look at elk, which are sort of more similar in size, they also don't jump super high. So if a horse, I brought this up with you recently, if a horse runs really hard, he um, starts bleeding through his nose. Is that right? Exactly. And that and that is for what reason? So horses, their internal organs will slosh up against their diaphragm and their lungs when they're galloping because they have to pull their legs up so hard. So if they gallop for long enough, their lungs will get micro tears in the capillaries and they'll start bleeding from their nose. So uh, is it partially because a horse is four-legged and people are two-legged too? It's partially that, and it's partially the horses are really terribly designed. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you look at a dog, and a dog doesn't start bleeding from its nose because it's been running too long. No. Mm-hmm. And so, what is the difference between a horse and a dog? Then, I mean, a lot of differences, but what specifically in their anatomy is different that would make a, a horse? Is it just their organs sloshing around? They're so big. Yeah, and, and their size, basically. And it sort of beats their lungs up. Yeah. Are their lungs really big? Really big yeah, they're really big. Proportionally, are they really big, too? I think they're just really big in proportion with the horse if okay. you look at other animals. And dogs, just being, well, just being smaller would be an advantage if you were going to run because then, you, you know, you would have all that weight. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us something else fascinating about a horse. So if you look at a horse's leg and you look at your hand, so they're not running on their knuckles or like their second knuckles. They're running only on their middle finger. Okay. And then the hoof is actually the nail of that middle finger. So that's the entire weight bearing object for an entire thousand pound horse. So they get a lot of foot problems is the most important thing you need to know before you get a horse. So is it, they also get a lot of leg injuries, I would imagine, because mm-hmm. they got these little spindly legs and they're huge. Yeah. So they get that and then a lot of foot problems. Mm-hmm. So do you have to do as much leg care as you do foot care on a horse? Um, mainly what you do for leg care is slowly conditioning a horse so it can do what you want to do so it can build up those muscles and then not over-exercising your horse so the ligaments don't get hurt. 
but you can't really do anything to improve the health of their feet except just to look after them and be careful, I guess. You can't, like, make them stronger. Yeah, well, you can breed for stronger hooves and stronger legs, and you can also use barriers to sort of shape the hoof so that the pressure is distributed evenly over the entire hoof and that'll prevent a lot of problems and of course you can put shoes on horses but there's not much you can really do to fix something if a horse already has a really bad hoof problem and that's how most horses end up being put down Hmm. well faith this has been fascinating a great way to ease into the day on the day after will and Abby's wedding and again congratulations to Will and Abby it was a great time and we we're probably a little sluggish this morning getting started from there the was event. a free open bar so <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was alcohol in the evening and it's been coffee in the morning exactly yeah so uh that's our uh episode for of uh, narratives for the week uh thanks for being here and we'll see you next time see you next time well that's our show for today I'm Will Jarvis And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.